You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. have a Bible, meet me uh, in the book of Obadiah. If you need to stop at the table of contents on the way, uh, I understand. Uh, The book of Obadiah is where uh, we will be together this morning. And uh, as you turn to the book of Obadiah, I want you to consider this question. Uh, Does God have enemies? Does God have enemies? Now, uh, as I was thinking about this question this week, and I was even reading a little bit on this question, one of the answers that came up, well, it depends on which God you're talking about, right? Uh, be, because uh, the God of Islam, he, he would say, they would say that one thing, or Hinduism would say uh, another thing, but we're talking about the real God, right? The true God, the living God, the God of the Bible. Does God have enemies? And so as we look at the book of Obadiah this morning, one of the things I said last week as we looked at the book of Amos is that you can think about the prophets and you can add kind of a one-word description to these minor prophets. Another thing you can also do is you can classify each prophet under a question. And I think the question that Obadiah is answering is, does God have enemies? As we look at this book what we're going to see is that the answer is yes. Now, maybe even that thought of does God have enemies, maybe that's a question that you've never wrestled with. That's, that's a question you've never thought about. I think it would be fair to say that, that in our culture, in the world that we live in today, specifically in America, thinking about God having enemies, there's, there's something that, that whenever we ask that question, there's part of us that, that really kind of presses back against that, right? There, there's part of us that really makes us wonder, well, why would you even ask that question? Well, as we look at the book of Obadiah, what we're going to see is that the answer to that question is actually good news for us. And so as we look at Obadiah, we're going to see this truth. We can have confidence knowing that God fights for his people. We can have confidence knowing that God fights for his people. Now, uh, look with me here at uh, Obadiah. Um, Now, all of Obadiah is chapter one, so I'm not going to say Obadiah chapter one, but let me invite you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Uh, We're going to start with just the first four verses of Obadiah. Starting in verse one, the Spirit says to us this, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, speak to us clearly through your word. Lord, we know that your word is truth. And so, Father, we want to hear the truth of your word today. So, Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as we look at the book of Obadiah, we're going to see a, a, few, a few truths about the way that God fights. And, and so first, in the first four verses, we see this, who God fights. Who, who is it that God fights? Now, it might be strange to think about God fighting anyone, right? It, it, it might be strange to, to think about God wrestling or God warring against an individual or against a people, but that's exactly what we have here in the book of Obadiah. What we have is we have the Lord speaking through his prophet, uh, promising, declaring that he is going to wage war against this nation, Edom. Now, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It right at 291 words. Depending on which translation you use and who's doing the counting, it, it can also be the shortest book in the Bible. And so he, he's writing, and as he's writing, he's not giving us a lot of historical clues. But what we can deduce as we read through this book is that it seems to be that he's writing at the same time as the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. Obadiah is one of the minor prophets. And when we talk about minor prophets, we're not saying that their message is minor in any way, right? What we're saying is that their message is smaller than the major prophets. So Obadiah is smaller than Jeremiah. And they're both writing right around the time that Babylon is going to invade Judah. That Babylon's going to invade God's people. Now, Obadiah doesn't give us really much information about who he is. If you remember back to Amos, Amos tells us some things about himself. Obadiah doesn't do that. In fact, as we read through the Old Testament, there are 12 different men named Obadiah, and we're not sure which one of them wrote this book or if any of them wrote this book. The word, the, the name Obadiah, it means servant of the Lord. And, and so some think that that this was someone who was writing under a pen name, someone who's just writing as the servant of the Lord. But here in Obadiah, we get this picture of God going to battle for his people. These first four verses, we get this picture of who God fights. Now, this prophecy, unlike the other books that make up the minor prophets, that make up the book of the 12, this prophecy, this, this promise of judgment it's not directed to Israel. So Obadiah isn't writing and saying, Israel, this is what God is going to do to Edom. No, Obadiah is writing. The Lord is speaking through Obadiah's preaching. And Obadiah is saying, Edom, this is what God is going to do to you. And so he's writing to Edom, this small kingdom southeast of Judah, and Edom are the, the descendants of Esau, right? Of, of one of Jacob's, uh, Jacob's brother, the, the son of Isaac. Now, what we know from the rest of the Old Testament, and we even know today that, that Esau and Jacob were constantly at war, right? That, that Edom and, and Israel, that they were constantly at war. Uh, through the Old Testament, there are times where they enjoy great peace, there are times where Edom serves Israel, and then there are other times where they go to war, and what we're going to see here in Obadiah is that's where we find ourselves today. That's where they find themselves, that they are warring against one another. And so what is it that the Lord had against Edom? What we see in these first four verses is that the Lord was judging Edom's pride. They were really prideful for no reason. They were a small kingdom. They were insignificant when it came to their military. Really, for all intents and purposes, 
they were easily forgettable. And yet, as we read through the book of Obadiah, what we have is we have this picture of Edom puffing themselves up. We have this picture of Edom kind of beating themselves on the chest and saying, hey, listen to what I'm going to say, right? Listen to what I have done, and they really haven't done much. One commentator, he said this. He said, Edom was not a superpower. It was a small nation, but it was a proud nation. So in these first four verses... God promises that he is going to judge them for their pride. Their pride had deceived them. Their pride had led them to believe that they were really greater than what they were. In fact, as we read through Obadiah, what we're going to see is that their pride had deceived them. Their pride had lied to them into believing that they had done some things that they really hadn't done. That really the only thing that this nation, the only thing that this kingdom had going for itself was that they were located in the mountains. And so they thought that they were protected. They thought that they were untouchable. But as we've already read, that the Lord promises to bring them low. In verse 4, we see where their pride comes from. Look at verse 4. He says, though you soar aloft like the eagle. So he's saying that that though you enjoy a a place of, of height... Right? Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. See, this is who God fights. God fights the proud. Now, his hatred for pride, it's not reserved just for Edom. Right? We read all through the Bible that, that God opposes the proud. Right? That God wars against the proud. That he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, what we know from the Bible and also what we know from experience is that typically whenever we get puffed up with pride, that's exactly when things are about to go bad. Uh, I was reading this week uh, about the Maginot Line. Now, maybe you've heard of this line. This, uh, this line was built by France as a defense after World War I. They built uh, this, uh, this really installment uh, on their border with Germany, and it took them 10 years to build. And they built this installment, they they built this encampment thinking that if they ever go to war with Germany again, they'll be ready. So they spent 10 years building this really impressive defense. It, It had thick walls of concrete. It had heavy guns. It had air-conditioned living areas and recreation areas. It even had an underground railway so that when the fighting got intense, they could still pass supplies from one end of the line to the next. And so France had built their confidence on this line that should Germany ever decide to get big, should Germany ever decide to invade, they will be okay. Well, what we know is that just a few years after this line was finished, Germany did invade, and Germany knew exactly where the Maginot Line was. And so do you know what they did? They invaded about 100 miles west of it, right? They missed the line completely. But France had built this great defense thinking that they were going to be okay, thinking that, that should Germany ever decide to invade, that, that they're going to be fine, only to realize that their best effort was worthless. See, Edom, had, they had built up in themselves that, look, because of where we're located, no one can touch us. We're on the top of the mountain. We've got rocky heights all around us. There's, there's really no way for anyone to get to us. They were placing their confidence in where they had nestled themselves. And God says, look, you may be high, but I'm going to bring you low. 
See, the truth is, is that we, like Edom, we trust in all of the wrong things. Right? We trust in the things that we can build. We trust in the things that we can see. Right? We put our confidence in in what it is that we can earn for ourselves. We put our confidence in, in what it is that we can build for ourselves that, hey, if, if I just lose a lot of weight, then I'm going to be happy. Hey, if, if I just work really hard, then, then everything is going to be okay. Hey, if I can just have that house, then, then everything is going to be great. But what we know is that all of those things really just end up letting us down. See, one of the things that the, the minor prophets will do over and over again is that they're going to beat a few drums. And what we saw in Amos and in Joel and even all the way back in Hosea is that one of the things that Israel was guilty of is they were guilty of idolatry, right? They, they were guilty of giving their, their love and their hope and their joy and their desire for peace to things that would never deliver, right? To, to, to false gods that, that would never give them what they were looking for. In the same way, Edom is putting their hope they're, they're putting their security in this thing that God says, I can destroy easily, right? You and I, we've got to be weary. We've got to be careful that we aren't putting our hope in things that really aren't going to deliver what we think they will, right? We've got to be, be careful that we're not putting our hope in the case of Israel. They had been guilty of putting their hope in all of these idols, but we, like Edom, oftentimes it's not that we're putting our hope in an idol. It's that we're putting our hope in ourselves, right? It's that we're putting our hope in ourselves and what we can do and what we can accomplish and what, what we can get and what we can build and what we can try. But what we see here is that God opposes the proud, right? That we think that our pride is somehow different than Edom's pride. We think that our pride is, is somehow different than theirs because, well, they are the pagans and we're not, right? My pride isn't as bad as Edom's pride. But here's the thing, pride is pride, right? Notice that the Bible doesn't say that God opposes the pride of the pagan, but he gives grace to the pride of the Christian. No, what the Bible says is that God opposes the proud, right? He opposes the pride. He, he opposes pride. And so who is it that God fights? God fights the proud. God fights those who have decided that they're going to put their hope and their trust and their affection in themselves rather than in him. That's what pride ultimately is. Pride ultimately is not saying that, God, you are not God. Pride is ultimately saying that, God, I'm a better God than you are. Right? I can do it better than you can. I can handle it on my own. Everything's going to be okay. And yet here we see how that ends up, right? That God fights the proud. And so we see here in Obadiah, we see who God fights. Next we see this truth. We see why God fights. Why is it that God fights? Well, he fights for his people. See, God wasn't fighting against Edom simply because they had been proud. Their pride had led them to action, and that action was to be opposed, to come against, to fight God's people. Ultimately, Edom's pride led them to sin against God's people, which is ultimately a sin against God. And so if you look at verses 10 through 14, we see Edom's violence against Israel is really interesting. So if you look at verse 10, what we see is that, that Edom's violence isn't even necessarily that they have been strong enough to do it, 
but that they have been passive and let someone else do the dirty work. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Right? That they stood aloof. They didn't do the violence, right? They, they weren't active in this. They were passive. While Babylon, who, who we know from, from the wider context of the Old Testament, while Babylon is invading Israel, what is it that Edom is doing? They're standing there with their hands in their pockets, not doing anything. Right? They're standing there watching, and yet we get this picture from Obadiah that, that as they stand there and watch, they watch what happens, and then they celebrate. Right? Then they act like they have done something. Verse 12 says that they gloat. He says, but do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. But as we keep reading, we see that they didn't just gloat, but they rejoiced. They looted. They, they captured those who tried to flee, and they sold them into slavery. Now, what's so interesting about this is that Edom gloats, but they don't gloat because of what they have done. They gloat because of what Babylon has done. Right? They, they, they don't gloat because they have defeated Israel. They gloat because Babylon has defeated Israel. And they think that because Babylon has defeated Israel and, and because they're connected to Babylon in some way, then that means that this victory somehow belongs to them. You know, it's no secret that I am a, a sports fan, right? Uh, I'm a Gator fan. And, and one of the things that, that I, I always just kind of chuckle at is, is now, I think that the greatest fan base in all of college football are the Florida Gator fans, right? That's uh, without question. But one thing I always chuckle at is, is whenever fans say, yeah, we won. We, we won the game. We beat this team. We beat that team. Well, we didn't do anything, right? <laughs> I, I sat on my couch and watched them win, but I'll take the W, right? I'll, I'll take the victory. I'll, I'll take the win. That's what Edom had done. Edom had sat back. They had sat on the couch, and they had done nothing. See, what had happened was is their pride had blinded them from seeing their own weakness. So why does God fight? Well, he fights for his people because an attack on God's people is an attack on God. This is how it was all through the Old Testament. This is how it was, is... In the New Testament as well, if you, you look at Acts chapter 9, verse 4, this is where the conversion of Saul happens, and, and Jesus comes, and he confronts Saul. Right? If you remember that story, he strikes him blind, and, and Saul's the great persecutor of the church. And listen to the question Jesus has. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? See, all through redemptive history, all through the story of the Bible, God has always identified closely with his people. Right? God has always identified with his people. And so why is it such a problem for Edom that they were opposing God's people? Because here's the truth. To oppose God's people is to oppose what God is doing in the world. 
So for Edom to oppose Israel, then they are opposing what God is doing in the world. For, for someone to oppose God's people is to oppose how God is working, how God is acting, how God is moving in the world. And so here in, in Obadiah, what we see is that we don't trust in ourselves. That's what God's enemies do. Our hope for our security and our future, it's not in ourselves, but it's in the God who never fails. He, he has never been defeated, and he never will. And not only has he never been defeated, but he has never forgotten us. Right? In this scene, in this picture that we have in Obadiah, we get this picture that Israel has just been defeated. Israel has just been conquered. And I'm sure as we read this, maybe it's easy to start to wonder, well, why would the Lord let Israel be conquered? Why would the Lord let his people be conquered? And maybe the question is also, okay, so he's going to judge Edom, but shouldn't he be judging Babylon? Shouldn't Babylon be who the Lord is judging? But we've got to remember that, remember we read this prophet, that Obadiah doesn't come to us in a vacuum. Obadiah comes to us in a context, right? We said early on as we started making our way through this series that the 12 minor prophets, that originally they were the book of the 12. They were one book. And so Obadiah comes right on the heels of Joel and Amos where God has promised judgment on his people. And if we were to pull back and we were to, to kind of get the bigger picture of what's happening here in the Old Testament, is what we see is that God had chosen Babylon to be the instrument of judgment that he would carry out on his people. And Obadiah is even really starting to, to kind of push us that way. So if you, you look here from verses 10 all the way down to verse 14, we see that word day repeated. It's repeated nine times. Now, this is important here in the Minor Prophets because what we, we remember is in Joel and in Amos that the day of the Lord was introduced, right? And what we saw is that the day of the Lord, that, that it could be a day of judgment on God's people, and it was also a day of judgment on God's enemies. And so here, Obadiah, he's, he's reminding us that this disaster that came on Judah, that it was the day of the Lord's judgment, that the Lord had used Babylon to judge but Edom was never to be a part of that. Edom had, had kind of weaseled their way in. And so God is, is judging Israel for their sin. He's, he's judging Israel for their idolatry. But get this, that even in God's judgment, he doesn't forget his people. Right? Even in God's judgment, he, he doesn't turn his back on his people. And so for us today, God's judgment has ultimately and finally not been carried out on us, but it's been carried out on Jesus on the cross. See, just as God didn't forget Judah, he isn't going to forget us. He, he pours out his judgment on Jesus on the cross in our place. And we get that, right? We know that. We know that that Jesus has, has died for us. I mean, that's the, the heart of the gospel message. But so often we, we think about the fact that, that Jesus has died on the cross and then in the next thought, in the next breath, our minds, our hearts turn to, well, God must have forgotten me in this situation. Right? That, that as we walk, as we struggle through, through this situation or through, through that situation, through this season or that season, when life gets hard and when things get difficult, our minds turn to, well, God must have forgotten me. 
right? Where are you, Lord? But we shouldn't confuse God's silence for God's absence, right? And that in that trial, in that season, that that's not judgment from God because judgment from God has been carried out on Jesus in our place. But instead, that's God working in his own mysterious way to make us more and more into the image of Jesus. And so as we look at this, this, this passage, we see who God fights and we see why God fights. And finally, we see how God fights. See, our God never ignores our suffering. He, he, he never ignores his people. He, he sees and he cares and he acts. The book of Obadiah ends with a promise. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord, there's that day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall, shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And, and so how is it that God's going to fight? Well, God's going to fight through the day of the Lord. Joel and Amos had already introduced this. Joel had promised judgment for Israel and the nations. Amos promised judgment for Israel. And now Obadiah is promising judgment for the nations, for Edom, for all that is opposed to who God is and what God is doing in the world. And so in verse 15, it, God makes this promise. He says, look, Edom, your deeds are going to be returned to you. So what you have done to my people, I am going to do to you, but it's going to be much, much worse. In verse 16, Edom had celebrated by drinking and by, by throwing a party on Mount Zion. They had celebrated the fact that God's people had been defeated by drinking and by, by having this party on God's holy hill. And so now here in verse 16, God makes this promise that the next drink they will drink will be the cup of his judgment. It will be the cup of his wrath. And the judgment that God is bringing isn't simply a judgment to destroy what they have built. The judgment that God is bringing, he's coming to wipe them off the map. And so we have this promise of judgment against Edom. But then we also have a promise of faithfulness, a promise of blessing to Israel. See, God fights against his enemies, but he also fights for his people. So we read there from verses 17 down to verse 21. And if we were to go back and we were to unpack what's happening there, what the Lord is doing is he's promising that everywhere where Edom and the other nations had spread throughout the promised land, that one day Israel would cover that land. 
In fact, if we were to read in another one of the prophets, we would see is that this was always Israel's mandate. Israel's mandate was to cover the land with God's glory the way the water covers the sea. And so God says that promise is going to come true, that my people are going to multiply, my my people are going to spread. See, what we see here is that God is not indifferent towards the sins of Edom, but he's also not indifferent to the joy of his people. Now, remember who this book is addressed to. This book isn't addressed to Israel. This book is addressed to Edom. And so God makes this promise here in Obadiah at the end of Obadiah. He makes this promise, and he makes this promise to Edom, and it's almost as if he's doing a victory lap. It's almost as if he's saying, look, Edom, not only am I going to wipe you off the map, but Israel is going to take your place. Israel is going to prosper. So here's the truth. God isn't just concerned with defeating our enemy. He's also concerned with our joy. So if we were to fast forward this a little bit, we'd say that God isn't just concerned with defeating your sin, but the reason he defeated your sin was for your joy. I I think about this the way I think about superhero movies, right? This is the superhero movie problem. If you watch a superhero movie, the, the superheroes come in, they defeat the bad guys, and then once the bad guys are defeated, they leave, but the rubble is left, right? The, the city is still destroyed. The, the citizens are left to clean it all up. Here's the thing. God doesn't just fight, but he also fixes and he restores. See, he, he doesn't just fight against our enemy, but he also fixes and he restores what we had lost. See, our God cares about our joy and he does the work to secure it. Sometimes we might think that that God doesn't really care if we're happy. Or that, that God doesn't really care whether or not we have joy. But what we see, the, the more we read the Bible, is that God doesn't just care about your happiness. God has secured your joy. That God hasn't just fought against our great enemy, which is sin. He hasn't just defeated our great enemy, but he's also won joy for us. And so he doesn't defeat sin and then leave us to pick up the wreckage and the carnage of sin on our own. No, he defeats our sin and then he fixes and he restores what was lost. He he fixes and he restores what we messed up. He he fixes and he restores all that sin had stained. And so we can have confidence knowing that that God fights for our people because he, he fights for our joy. That your joy, your happiness, that it is not left to you to try to gain on your own. Right? That, that your joy it isn't left in, in, in you trying to, to work to, to obtain this or uh, to get that or to have that. But that God, in defeating sin, he didn't just defeat sin, but he also won joy for you. And so now we can be full of joy because we have been saved and we have been forgiven and we have been made whole by our God. What we see in Obadiah isn't just that he fights for our joy, but it's also that he fights against our pride. I, I don't know anyone who, who, who would raise their hand and say, even I don't struggle with pride, right? You wouldn't struggle with pride, you'd struggle with lying then, right? Um, I, I don't know anyone who would say, I don't struggle with pride. Uh, Obadiah 
is a warning for us against pride. Right, Obadiah, for you and I this morning, is a clear call to put to death our pride. The Bible tells us that we're going to boast, that we should boast in knowing the Lord, not, not boast in all of these other things. And so maybe this morning, maybe you feel that monster of pride that's just always kind of there, right? That's just always kind of pressing you to be proud. And pride looks different for different people, right? My pride is going to look different than your pride, and your pride is going to look different than their pride. But Obadiah is a call for us to kill pride wherever it creeps up in our hearts, wherever it creeps up in our life, because ultimately our God is opposed to our pride. And so pride looks different in different ways, but the ultimate way that pride manifests itself, the ultimate way that pride shows itself is it it shows itself by convincing us that we can save ourselves and that we don't need a savior, right? The ultimate way that, that pride shows itself is, is, is by saying that, hey, we can handle it, that we don't need the Lord. But we see what happened when Obadiah did that, right? Or when, when Edom did that, right? When Edom did that, it, it wasn't that they could, they could stand, right? But it's that they would be judged. It, it wasn't that they could stand, but it's that they would be brought low from that perch on the mountain. And so maybe this morning you've come and maybe, maybe you, you've been rejecting, maybe you've been pushing against that, that call or, or that tug in your heart that the Holy Spirit of God is working in you to, to bring you to the Lord, to bring you to the gospel so that you can be saved and you can be forgiven. Maybe you've been thinking, well, no, I can do it on my own, right? I can be good enough. I can try hard enough. I can say the right things. I can do the right things. And ultimately, I can be a good enough person. And one day, if I'm a good enough person, I stand before the Lord. Then, then on that day, he'll say, well done. You've made it. Come on in. But that's not the way it works. See, Jesus has told us is that, that when we stand before the Father, what gets us into the kingdom is not the great work that we have done, but the final work that Jesus did on the cross, that, that on the cross, Jesus took the wrath that you deserve and that I deserve. You know, he, the Lord tells Edom here in Obadiah that, that they're going to drink the cup of his wrath. Well, on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus has done. On the cross, Jesus drank every last drop of God's wrath, flipped the cup over and said, it is finished. And so now if we... We'll trust him if we'll lay our lives down, if we'll make him our hope and our treasure and our joy. Then we can find forgiveness and we can find life and we can find peace. So maybe this morning you need to do that. Maybe this morning you need to lay down your pride and you need to turn to Jesus. If that's you, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you, see how we can come alongside you and help you begin to follow Jesus. You can send a text to that number on the screen, 407-338-4024. And there's someone there ready to talk with you. We've got our next steps room right out these doors on the right. There's someone in that room ready and waiting to talk with you and pray with you and see how we can come alongside you and help you know and trust and follow Jesus because that's really why we're here. We're here so that we can encourage one another, we can help one another to know and to love and to trust and to follow Jesus. 
And so my hope, my prayer this morning is that you would not, that we would not be like Edom and think we can handle it on our own, but that we, we would lay our life down. We would give all that we are to our God who has handled it all for us. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that that we have a Savior who has said, it is finished. And so, Father, I pray that, that you would fight against our pride that wells up inside of us. God, I pray that you would make the better way known to us, that the better way isn't giving into our pride, but it's trusting in you. And so, Father, I pray now that you would work in the hearts and in the lives of of us gathered in this room and and watching online, God, that you you would reveal to us where pride may be. You would stamp it out. You would, you would take it from us. And you would give us the good, comforting grace of the gospel. So, Father, we pray this, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.